Hey, well, look, uh, genuinely, thanks for joining me today. Uh, and one of the reasons, one of the reasons, and I'm sure you get this a lot, is uh, I grew up in Mount Roskill. So that's home turf. Hillsborough Road was where I uh, lived, grew up in Mount Roskill. Spent a lot of time up and down, of course, Dominion Road. Do you, I mean, is it something you love to talk about? Because, you know, I, I sometimes think that artists who get kind of peppered about the one thing constantly when they've got, I mean, your your body of work is extensive and amazing. Is it something you're like, yeah, I've done that, but I've done other things? Would you love talking about the sort of the backgroundy stuff that you've been doing, if, even if, if people do come back to kind of singular issues? Well, there's not many people that only want to talk to me about one thing. So I'm lucky. I'm, lucky <laughs> I'm not saying that, by the way. <laughs> in, in that regard, I'm lucky. No, no, I'm not saying you would, but but just in in my in my life of of um, of talking to people and and stacking up column inches and airtime uh, in order to alert people to the next thing I'm doing. Yep. Um, uh, I I'm lucky in that I haven't. Um, I haven't ever got to the stage where where I do ten interviews and they all want to talk about one song or you know um, because that's kind of not the kind of artist I've been. Yeah, um, that's for sure. I haven't been somebody who had had a hit and nobody nobody knows any of the other any of the other things. Most of my audience seem to um, delight in coming up with arcane. Uh, lost songs and asking me, <laughs> asking me about asking me about songs that I don't even quite remember, um, and and that goes for that's audience and that also goes for um, for in, interviewers and you know particularly with Dominion Road I don't um, uh, I did go through a stage of uh, kind of feeling weird about being seen on Dominion Road like if I <laughs> particularly when 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 somebody I know this is. Uh, there was absolutely no reason for it, but there were there was um, a, uh, somebody did some guerrilla um, public art uh, halfway down Dominion Road, or yeah, well, it wasn't exactly halfway down Dominion Road, which we found out later um, because a sort of art um, an art, art um, dispute arose between uh-huh. between the anonymous uh, artist uh, sculptor who did this. Uh, a little plaque in the footpath on Dominion Road, and the late Billy Apple, who's who's a guy I knew, uh, 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 was lucky enough to have met him, and he he uh, he thought it was really funny. So he he started a kind of war um, online with this anonymous artist, sort of saying, "You got it wrong. It's not exactly halfway down because because." <laughs> and Billy had calculated it with GPS, and there's also the issue of do you do you include Dominion Road extension and all that sort of yeah. stuff. So it became a kind of um, uh, you know, a, a kind of uh, an art. Uh, what do you call it? A, like a like a conversation, but but something a bit more heated than a conversation, which Billy loved to initiate and and sustain. Um, but during all of that, um, there were times when I would I would I would have loved to go and just sort of stand and look at the plaque and think, oh, that's so cool. You know, somebody's made, somebody's put uh, in bronze. You are now standing halfway down Dominion Road. On Dominion Road, and then it nearly got pulled up by the council, right? And then, and then somebody told me that they, uh, in order to, in order so that it wouldn't be dug up, um, they brought in like a special rule or something, calling deeming it to be public art. 
so uh, so they they sort of stopped the they stopped the demolition order just before it happened, and all of that sort of stuff. So there was there was a period where I would have loved to go go and stand and just look at it, but I was kind of a bit shy of some, you know somebody driving past and taking a photograph of me looking at looking at the plaque. <laughs> Still, what a, what a great image! It must it must be both in, enthralling and a little bit weird to sort of be a part of the narrative of the country. I mean, like I said, you know, you've just, so what I, cause what I hear you saying is your art has now become someone else's art. It's inspired yeah. someone else's art and the conversation and the artistic conversation continues. Like I was, like I worked at the Celtic service station on Dominion Road. I grew up on Hillsborough Road. I spend a lot of time there and still to this day, you know, when I'm back in Auckland, um, in Dunedin, obviously, and I'm driving across that, you know, where uh, Mount Albert Road goes across Dominion Road, that main intersection, uh, that's every time. Uh, Don, the song jumps into my head, and I always have to be careful when I have these conversations because, like, I had I had on uh, lead singer of Fur Patrol, and I had that Lydia song in my head. I couldn't get it out, and I was thinking, going, uh, meh, meh, and then I was like, oh shit, I better stop because she's going to go bloop and pop up, and I'm going to be singing. And that was the same this morning with Dominion Road. I had to kind of go, well, okay, just take a breath because you don't want to make yourself like a complete moron when Don comes on. <laughs> don't want to fangirl too much, but yeah, so it's a, it's actually a part of my that song and your work is a part of my formative years. And it's just, it's just fascinating that, you know, art can do that and get into people. And that's why one of the reasons I'm excited to talk to you because, you know, you have been an influence on my life through your music in those formative years. Like I'm 15 years younger than you. So like when you were doing that, I was in my teens and you know, it really is in that moment. Oh, it's lovely to hear. And, um, and I think that's what you can do. I mean, that's what one of the things you can do, if you're in this job, is to um, help colour in the the world around you and the world around people, so yeah. that when they when they drive down a road, they don't just drive down a road and and sort of you know think about not banging to, not banging into somebody else. They also see they they see some of what you saw when you when you made the song or or painted the picture or or wrote the story or whatever. But the, the Dominion Road just kept, keeps on rolling on. There, there's a there's a Wellington <laughs> band called Darts who've done a parody. They talk, they they got in touch with me, or I think I heard through my my nephew. Uh, he said, "Oh, this is a cool band. You know, we we heard them. We went to a pub and they were they played this wailing version of Dominion Road." And I thought, "Oh, that's good." And then <laughs> and then they said they've done a sort of tribute to Dominion Road, and or, or uh, and I had to listen to it, and it's a complete it's a complete rewrite using the same chorus or the same basic words in the chorus and um and the same tune uh but it's about uh dumpling houses on dominion road so it's about <laughs> it's it's about their their search there is a traveling band and they've they've come up from wellington and you know like most people who come to come to auckland one of the wonderful things that you just you discover is that all these fantastic eateries along dominion road and so they <laughs> they've changed um in a uh in a halfway house, halfway down Dominion Road, to a um, to a dumpling house, halfway down Dominion Road, and they they <laughs> called me up and said, um, "Would you like to come out, come out and eat dumplings with us on Dominion Road, and then we'll, uh, um, and then we'll put it in our video." So <laughs> that was great. So I did that, and um, we uh, uh, it's it's the if you if you look at the video, it's got a it's quite jaunty the song, and then halfway through, it's got a sort of horror. A, a horror um, slow motion bit mm. where where everything slows down and the the you know they look everybody that's sitting at the table looks like they're sort of suddenly overwhelmed by the mass of noodles so it's kind of 
it's looking at the dark side of noodle eating. I didn't know there was a dark side of noodle eating, but <laughs> evidently there is. There's that thing called, is it called mukbang or something, where people get on camera and they and they eat as much as they can. They basically eat to excess. And that's uh, maybe that's part of the it, dark side of noodle eating. Yeah, I, I'm horrified to hear that that's a thing, but I'm, <laughs> just like everything else in the world, that's a thing. I'm sure it is a thing, and I'm sure it'll continue until the next thing comes along. Um, referencing, and I'm not going to talk about one thing the whole night, I promise, but referencing the Dominion Road for me and it being a place for me and you saying that, you know, giving other people a chance to almost anchor themselves in some of these things that you were seeing, you were someone who did seem to write quite a bit about, you know, the, the world around you, whether it be the Harbour Bridge or whether it be the guy on Dominion Road or whatever, it was almost like you were trying to say, this is me, this is where I'm from, uh, you know, local art comes out of the local community. Is that is that something that's always been a part of your uh, your artistic expression, like to go, this is where I'm from, this is what we write about where I'm from? Um, it's interesting. I don't know whether it's always been something I've wanted to do. I mean, I, I, you know, the first bands I were in, I was in were, well, the first band I was in was playing, um, you know, very uh, kind of, Borrowed cultural borrowings from from mid Midwest USA, which we um, a place we knew nothing about, but we were you know we played uh, Steely Dan covers and and um, uh, yeah, um, Doobie Brothers and Bachman Turner Overdrive covers and that sort of stuff. We were, and then punk came along and and we got sort of swept into a. Uh, a different kind of borrowing because all the all the bands, a lot of the Auckland bands anyway, were sort of singing, uh, were very um, uh, sort of affected and influenced by um, what was going mm. on in, in Britain. So there were people suddenly talking in a cock, cock, you know, Aucklanders suddenly talking in the Cockney accents and singing about <laughs> singing about about um, overthrowing Thatcher and that sort of stuff. Um, but at the same time, the People around me that were doing really exciting stuff, and when I was, you know, quite young, seventeen, eighteen, um, were um, writers, local writers, who um, were just sort of standing up and saying, "This is, this is me. This is where, um, this is where I grew up. These are the uh, houses. These are the houses and streets that I look at when I go for a walk." Um, and um, I think, I think that sort of got inside me before I was really doing very much writing. And then and then when I went away and lived in New York for a year, uh, when I was in about 22, I suppose, um, <clears throat> a lot of stuff happened during that year. And uh, um, I was surrounded by artists. You know, New York's just filled with people that are from somewhere else. They're, mm -hmm. they're all, um, they've, they've all arrived, they've all, sort of got off the Greyhound bus and they're desperately trying to sort of try to um, create a point of difference from, for themselves. Yeah. And um, and I found that really interesting. So it, in, in a way it became a, a, a place full of art, which was about nowhere, you know, um, and right. um, or art about, about the pure, um, about the pure experience of being human, like like some of the uh, Laurie Anderson stuff and some of the performance art I was I was what looking at, and 
and he, of course a huge melting pot of of music but the most exciting music was plays the stuff that really really spoke of somewhere you know i went i went out to a lot of um african music uh, king right, sunny right. day and places people like that and the just the uh um the, just the dignity of standing standing up and saying this is the music that we make you know we're this we're this sort of people this is where we come from this is the way we talk um really excited me and um and i guess that's one of the reasons i came back it's one of the reasons i didn't stay and and um you know keep trying to get jobs in music over there i had you know i was i was starting to get some work um, in different sorts of different sorts of fields, um, um, but I was really, I really thought it'd be great to come back and find a, find find my voice, you know, find yeah. find the way I could the way I could describe the the world around me. Um, um, yeah, I mean, that's <clears throat> it. Sounds like it was, it was a sense of mission mission coming back, but there, I, I've quite often I've sort of wondered. Um, what would ha- what would have happened had had I not done that? Had I stayed right sort of somewhere else? Well, because um, when you were in New York, you were kind of working more in the theatre world, weren't you? Because I was in the dance world. Really? Yeah, your partner at the time was in the dance world, and that was uh, after. Was it the other was, way around? Did you get the other, Yeah, the other, that was the other way around. I I got right. I, I was in New York. Um, I got into a dance company uh, playing the drums, and we toured a lot, and I did a lot of. Um, I did also did a lot of composing for other choreographers, right, right, and right. a lot of accompanying dance dance classes, and then um, and um, and then I came home to New Zealand, and Marianne Schultz, who's, who's also a member of the dance company, the Laura Dean dancers and musicians, she came back uh, came to New Zealand, having grown up in upstate New York, came back to New Zealand, um, and and we got married in uh, in 1990. Uh, so I'd I'd been there in okay. early early eighties, uh, and then um, uh, and then um, we got together in the mid eighties, and then uh, finally got married in in nineteen nineteen ninety. So yeah, it was it was more the the theatre, but also I was kind of like a dry sponge in water. I was just looking at everything, going out to all the music I could go out to, and um, just uh, just loving it, but always with this feeling that um, there was. I had some work to do, you know. I had I wanted to I wanted to write as many songs as were in me, and I wanted right. to find out what they would be like. What would those songs be like if I, if I, uh, you know, I imagine myself at at my age, I suppose, turning around and looking back at at all at a whole bunch of albums, and I I sort of wondered what they'd be like. That was the question that I asked myself, and uh, I think that was a spur to coming back and just writing as much as I could. There was a, you know, everything changed when I got back, of course, because I. I um, started collaborating with Harry Sinclair in the front lawn. So we we um, uh, we worked on an, in an area which wasn't just songs; it was a bunch of stories and uh, theatrical stuff. And we did that for six years. Um, but still, the uh, the impetus to to try and try and speak in my own voice um, carried over into that that front lawn stuff because we uh, we didn't. You know, we didn't pretend to be from anywhere but here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and look, I mean, speaking of the, the discography, as they say these days, and what you're looking back on, I mean, she's pretty bloody impressive. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you have a look, you know, at where you've been, what you've done, you know, where you are today, 
it's it's a, it's a pretty amazing journey. And I was thinking about the front lawn actually. Um, I have this memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I have this memory of maybe early 2000s, 2003, 2004 maybe, of seeing like an old Kingswood vehicle in Te Papa being connected to the front lawn. Now, I'm not sure on that, but so did you guys, was there a collaboration between our National Museum and the front lawn and there was a display in there? This is a terrible question because if I'm wrong, it's going to go nowhere, but I just have this no, no, it's no, a it's really a... strong memory in the back of my head about the front lawn having a car in Te Papa. And I was well, going to ask you about that. Well, we I, I don't know. We had a car. We had a um, we had a Pontiac Laurentian, which was uh, um, owned at one point by by our manager Grant, uh, owned by Harry's cousin, um, and I and I owned it for a while. It was a big long thing, and uh, the paintwork was shocking. So it didn't really matter what we did with it. So we we stuck a little glued bits of Velcro on it, and then we commissioned the making of a giant um, uh, fun fur, green fun fur cover yeah. for this car, so it looked like it was covered with AstroTurf, and we had the front lawn yeah. sort of written on it, on the side of it. And we toured in that. That was a touring vehicle for a couple of tours. It was really, it was incredibly um, uh, unreliable, and <laughs> it used to it used to play tricks on us, like uh, like like the ring in, in the Lord of the Rings, it would, when we were going along thinking that we were doing great, it would sort of, <laughs> it would deliberately mess us up. And at, uh, at one point, at one point we were heading over the Harbour Bridge and the bonnet flew up and the bonnet was as big as a football field. And so you couldn't <laughs> see, you couldn't see anything. And we, uh, we didn't have an accident. We didn't drive off the, off the Harbour Bridge, but it was a, a scary moment. But yeah, so that, uh, we had that car, we actually did, a couple of New Zealand tours with the car as the touring vehicle, and then we um, we took the cover over to Melbourne, and we did a did touring around in the Melbourne Comedy Festival with another another car, the similar sort of car. Um, now, whether whether that's in whether that's had anything to do with Te Papa or not, I don't know. But mm. there's a there's a Holden. Um, covered with uh, corrugated iron uh, or a Holden that looks like it's made out of corrugated iron that's definitely been in Te Papa because that's, um, that's the work of a sculptor named Jeff Thompson. And he, was, he went to the same high school that Harry and I went to, but he was a few years ahead of us. Right. Um, and uh, um, and I'm, I've actually been collaborating with him <clears throat> for the last year because he's making a whole bunch of really cool uh, sculptures of text around the school at Westlake High School for for their 60th year anniversary, and they got in touch with me. Said, "Can we put the words to one of your songs? Um, can we uh, carve them into the wood above the above the entrance to the music department?" Yeah, and I was like, "Yeah, well, okay, but I really I really like the idea of um, uh, lyrics and poems." Uh, in like permanent materials uh, that people can walk past the the the, um, the poetry walk uh, in Wellington Harbour is really great mm -hmm. I reckon just where you you walk along and you see down down almost at water level you see on a on a uh, on a jetty pile uh, piling you'll see a poem that jumps out at you and it's all sort of uh, weather weather beaten and uh, so we talked about how we could maybe get a bunch of yeah, 
that sort of stuff. So we can how we could get a, a bunch of lyrics from different people that had gone through the school, not just me. Um, and the, the the idea grew and grew and grew. Um, and the the school really liked it, and so they've put they put uh, resources into it. And so Jeff's been working away at these sculptures, and Richard von Sturmer, who was one of the, the our sort of inspirational um, figures uh, when we were starting off in music and 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 the arts in Auckland, uh, he's got a couple of haiku in that nice. that's going to be rendered in manhole covers. So. You oh, walk cool. walk along the walk along the sort of footpath in the school, and you look down, and you'll see this. This is a, a beautiful poem about the sun, just done in sort of like inch and a half thick steel. And I love the permanence of that. And uh, uh, Harry's brother Stephen is a really fine poet uh, and a playwright, and he's got a he's got a a beautiful poem about about the Coromandel Coast, and that's going to be. I've just seen the the early sketches of that. That's going to be rendered in steel or I think alloy letters that look like they're dripping down a huge weatherboard building. Wow! So it's super cool. So so that's a long answer to a short question. <laughs> uh, the the car. Yep, we had a car. I don't think it's been in a, in a museum, but the car that is in the museum, we all, I also have a connection with. We 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 both have a connection with actually. Isn't it fantastic when you're asking a name pointless question and get a fantastic story after it anyway? So this is this is why I love what we do here, Don. It's just open it up and let's see what happens. Um, we stay boys. Uh, I um, I'm interested. As, uh, they have a, a a very well known history for rugby. Yeah. I'm wondering about their history for the arts. I I um, I'm a Sacred Heart college old boy. Uh-huh. So of course, through Sacred Heart, uh, through Sacred Heart is you know the, the split ends and the fins and the yeah, crowded yeah. house and the Dobbins and, and Dobbin, quite yeah. a strong, quite a strong history of it there. And, and and Tor Fraser, who I want to talk to you about at some stage, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what about what about Westlake boys? Are we going to give them a shout out? What were they like in the arts and, and that sort of world? Oh, it was it was set up to be uh, the northern counterpart to Auckland Boys Grammar, so it was mm-hmm. um, um, it was quite a quite. Tough school, very very sports oriented, um, with a, with a, a really good uh, rugby pedigree and, a, and an amazing rowing pedigree. My my older brother was the cox of the senior eight, and then wow. and then in a, in a fairly rare move, he uh, trained up and became a rower himself. So he 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 um, he had his own uh, coxed four, I think, as when he was a senior. Um, um, it wasn't the easiest place to be, not sporty. I mean, I was a, I, w- I was into sailing big time, but I wasn't. Uh, I, I was a bit too uncoordinated and dreamy to, to be much use in, in team sports. You were in a you were um, in a crash into someone uh, kind of sporting person. Yeah, I mean, I, I did cross country running and I was good at yep. that. Yeah, but I was, uh, and I did sailing because partly because it gave us a, an afternoon off on Wednesdays because we, we could just <laughs> go down the go down the lake and push a boat out into the water. But I still, I mean, I still sail competitively. Um, that's still a big part of my life. Um, but um, uh, the and and I think that I think that the teachers that were um, really encouraging of music and and the arts. Um, were, um, I don't think they got much 
uh, encouragement from the from the head honchos at the school. I think I think I think uh, the arts were sort of seen as a sort of a nice to have. Um, uh, got to got to tick that curriculum box kind of yeah, thing. bit of bit of seasoning on the basic meal, right, which is okay. sport, you know, and um and but having said that, we, you know, there were some fantastic teachers. There was a um uh, there was a man named Mr. Lewis who was a who was an English teacher who um, was very very inspirational. He 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 was a very dry, sarcastic fellow who used to um, read from Kingsley Amos to us. You know, and I'm sure that wasn't in the curriculum. You know, he just liked <laughs> he he just thought it was funny, and he he uh, rather than sort of labour us through, um, uh, you know, nouns and verbs, he he just he uh, would just read to us uh, once a week, and it was fantastic. And I had a great I had a great uh, music teacher who called Martin Heath, who uh, um, he was interested in uh, in. Uh, um, Pure Sound, and at that stage, at that stage, uh, Jack Body and others had started a um, uh, a movement called the Sonic Circus, I think it was in um, in Wellington, and uh, you could go there and you could just uh, a lot of that, a lot of similar stuff happens um, in festivals that are initiated by the Audio Foundation in Auckland now. Um, uh, but in those days, it was pretty. It was pretty rare, and so you could, um, you could uh, go along to uh, a big venue with with multiple rooms in it, and people would be running long tape loops, like down corridors, mm. and and uh, doing work with feedback and uh, pure pure sort of sonic exploration stuff. And this was before I had anything to do with from scratch. But um, Martin, uh, Mr. Heath, took us. Uh, managed to get funding to to bring a a music class like a fifth form music class or something down to down to Wellington just to just to perform and to um, see what it was like to be surrounded by a whole lot of music weirdos and I think that was that was pretty inspiring for me as a kid um, so yeah I think I think I think there were some really cool really cool people uh, teaching there um, and. You know, there was quite a bit of bullying at school. Um, it was a, it was pretty regimented. You didn't, you didn't have a first name as soon as you went and in, went into the right. school. You, you know, you became, you know, you know, McGlashan, McGlashan or Sinclair yeah. or Smith or whatever. Um, and so it was with a little bit of trepidation that uh, I started answering emails from the Old Boys Association last year or the or a couple of years ago about this project, but this project to sort of uh, bring bring text into the school, um, but the more I found out about them, the more I realised how things had changed. Like the the Old Boys Association now um, do these sort of projects. Um, they've they've managed to work out how they can get blam 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 back together, and we, get, <laughs> cool. we, we weren't we weren't the most uh, popular. I mean, I don't think we would have been popular. In the back in the day, you know, in our when we were like nineteen, twenty, to go back into that school, I think we would have um, uh, we would have been shown the door pretty fast. Um, but now that you know they've uh, they're having us back to play a big um, a big gig, like for a kind of ball for the uh, the sixty year anniversary, uh, and they do cool stuff like they 
Um, they make sure that kids that don't bring lunches to school have lunches. They raise money to help kids have scholarships and all sort of stuff. So, yeah, I think it's um, I think it's a cool place. And 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 I've noticed like for the past umpteen years, both the both the boys' school and the and the girls' school, which is they're both really big schools, but they're they're separated by a a hill, um, Forest Hill, where where pretty much where I grew up. Um, they both got an amazing uh, music program. They they regularly win string quartet and chamber music competitions, and their choirs are amazing. So, I, yeah, I think it's a I think it's a cool place. It is pretty amazing, and not to kind of tangent here to a, a, a negative about society, but I mean, you went to an all boys school. I went to an all boys school. Uh, at the era, there was a few other ones around. I'm thinking about Auckland Grammar, Tech, uh, King's College, you know, this school, that's St Peter's College, um, and in the news recently with the Sam Uffendale stuff coming out of King's College and the stuff that went on there, um, how things, because you're talking about bullying and stuff going on there, and, and it sounds like you had some trepidation, as you just said, to get back into this community that maybe you didn't have the best association with, how it can still last, how those things from when we were teenagers can still last 30, 40, 50 years later and still impact us and make us kind of feel, is this really a safe space for me, so to speak? Yeah, I just think yeah. it's always fascinating how those I mean, I mean, I don't want to get into what happened to you at school if anything really bad happened, but you know how those literal formative years, as I always used that phrase before about me and your music, uh, can still impact us in our forties, fifties, and sixties. Yeah, I mean, you you carry you carry those uh, experiences with with you, and um, I got off reasonably lightly, um, uh, I think, because I found out at an early age that that. That I could make people laugh, yeah. and uh, and and also I was musical, and so and and if you were in the music, if you're in the music room and there was a band, that, you know that you're playing some rock and roll, then then you were a bit cooler than than the other kids, so you you were a bit less likely to get um, get done over. Um, but um, yeah, those any any experience where where you're you're frightened or, or humiliated or ashamed. Uh, they become a kind of um, uh, like a kind of a kind of freeze dried meal that just sits in sits in your yeah. emotional freezer, ready to be brought out at short notice uh, and reheated, and and you 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 become that person again. And then and then you've got to do quite a bit of work to uh, to learn to to to, to learn to um, put your arm around that kid that's just appeared. You know, yeah. Like as a, as a six year old, suddenly suddenly a fourteen year old kid uh, who's uh, very scared of the big big guys at school has just appeared, and you've got to learn uh, you got to learn to put your arm around that kid and and um, and look after him. You know, uh, and that's been something that I've only learned quite recently. You know, wow. because uh, um, and uh, yeah, so I mean. Um, I don't know, and I think uh, I, I, you know if you if, with with a place like Sacred Heart, I mean that's got the, the extra overlay of of the um, kind of um, religious um, yeah, the Catholic structure of it. Um, uh, the Westlake Boys was pretty secular, so um, mm. it doesn't have that. But yeah, it's uh, it's um, yeah, you carry that stuff, and um, and you can't dispense with it. You need to. Um, you need to um, face it 
face the, the various frightened children within you and and look after them. Um, I'm interested to jump, not jump back to another conversation, but you were talking about uh, what informs you when we were talking about Dominion Road. And so many artists seem to be informed, like their art today seems to be informed by negative experiences in their past, whether it's, you know, the uh, the, the, C, the female singer-songwriter talking about a breakup, or whether it's comedians are, are traditionally completely fucked up people like but they find their comedy in that and they perform it i mean just your experiences your upbringings at school did, do you find that you you get informed by like more more of the negative interactions the positive interactions what does inform you with your music through the ages has it changed over the time no i think um i think uh the same stuff makes me want to write uh and yeah, Jan Janet Frame used to say that that she was like a um, uh, like a part of a jetty uh, stuck in the sea, and uh, and over time barnacles would grow on it, stuff right. like and you know and mo you know moss and slime and that sort of stuff would grow on it, and the more you went into the world and let uh, let those things attach to you, uh, the more you'd have to write about. And that's why she always said that uh, it's good to catch a bus because you're surrounded by the world and you look out the look out the bus window and you see the world and you're you're sitting next to someone and you hear them and smell them and feel their presence. Um, whereas if you're in a taxi, you uh, you know you arrive at your destination yeah. sort of smooth like a like a new jetty <laughs> and like a new pylon that's just been put just been put down into the water. So I, my I, I stuff that sticks to me. Uh, is it's quite mysterious, you know. I can I can um, I can read the paper, I can listen to the radio, I can have hear a fragment of conversation, or I can be walking along, I can see uh, see a, a couple having a conversation outside a store, and I imagine imagine a bit of a backstory to them, um, and I'll just jot that stuff down, um, and then then the question is, what's going to stick, you know, and for it to stick, it has to have, uh, has to find some fuel in my subconscious life. You know, I have to, I, like, whatever's inside me at the moment um, uh, has to want to go to work on that fragment that I've, I've noted down, that, that, uh, that little, that little idea. Um, <clears throat> and um, uh, I think that, hasn't changed really uh mm. i've tried uh, at times you know there's been times in, in my career where where um uh it would have been good to write a big pop song or it would have been good to write a sort of a uh a rocky song or something like that when the mutton birds was in britain when the band was in britain uh there were times when uh the record company was sort of saying you know why don't you write more why don't you write more stuff um uh uh and perhaps it, you know, and there were there were suggestions that it, that um, maybe the stuff could be stronger or more driving or more poppy or whatever. And I've tried, and I've I've never been very happy with with what's come out. So just that old habit of um, of taking note of what I see around me, yeah, and then waiting until that that puts down a puts down roots into uh what's inside and the thing is that what's inside is quite mysterious you don't know um you know you, you walk around 
like like a sort of archaeological dig. You know, you see grass on top, and the next layer down is pretty obvious. It's like topsoil or something, and then yeah. and there's some somebody's buried garden trowel, and then there's you know, <laughs> and then and then like a few hundred years ago, there's there's um uh, a little pile of shellfish where there was a fire and a meal or something and then you go further down um and that's kind of the way we all are in our daily lives i think you you um and what art can do what songs can do or what um paintings or stories can do is to uh is to go down and hook up some of that stuff that's that's below that's several layers down Mm. Um, and and give it a story to attach to, and then set it off into the world and see if you connect with other people's subconsciouses. Um, and uh, w- with luck, you can. Um, yeah, as you're describing that that picture of the you know the um, the shellfish being cooked, and I'm I'm actually literally in my head thinking about the backyard to number two. You know, that's the kind of place you'd find that fire pit with those things in there. Yep. And I was going to say, as impressive as your discography looks on your website, that's nothing compared to the actual, uh, you know, product you've made, the content you've made, the the art you've put out there, because there's all the soundtracks. So you mentioned Janet Frame. I think you did Angel at, at, Angel at My Table, Angel at Our Table. Yep. yep. And, and, and of course, then there's number two, again, uh, hearkening back to Mount Roskill. Literally, the mountain is in that, in that movie. Love it to bits. Um, and that that song, you know, that bathing in the river song is something that still, almost to this day, can bring a tear to the eye. It's it's amazing. I, I'm wondering, do you, have you got any experience to to share about about um, you know, your experiences through any stories to tell about your experiences through the music and the movie that was number two? Oh, I mean, it was that was the first time I collaborated with Tor. Um, uh, he he and I've worked together on uh, quite a lot of projects. Um, I love his work and uh, and uh, love working with him. We've we've always had a great um, great working relationship and a great relationship. Actually, we've, we've always been good mates. Um, he, uh, I think, I think number two because uh, he was delving into his own history and trying to trying to trying to write the. F- write the story of his family but in in a in a kind of exploded way it's not exactly his family it's a it's a kind of concoction of of uh various histories that he's put together um uh i just sort of leapt into that and learned more and more uh as i went on um uh um, in the early stages of the film, uh, he uh, Tor said, "There's a, I think there's a big song at the end of it, and I think we all have to. Everybody is singing it, so it's like they're in a there's a backyard party because the whole yeah. the whole story of the film is is um, are we going to you know it, uh, is the dysfunctional family going to be able to to put the big party on for for uh, for the, uh, the matriarch you know um, and eventually they do and um so the idea was that there was going to be a big song playing out out of the radio and everybody was going to sing along and it was kind of going to be like a classic uh uh and he tour was working on uh a mariah carey song or actually a, a, a duo a mariah carey and whitney houston song uh 
and that was what everybody was going to sing. And uh, and then he sort of broke it to me that because everybody's got to sing it at the end of the movie, uh, we've, that's got to be lip sync. So um, if if we can't use the Mariah Carey song at that stage, it was starting to look really unlikely that we could afford it because it would have it would have cost many times the budget of the movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, uh, if if we can't do that, can you write one? And and the next piece of information is it's got to be written in two weeks oh, um, wow. because the film was going to take. They were going to shoot the film, you know, through a summer, um, but everything had to be, all the shots had to be planned to an to an uh, to the ex existing song. So I had to write it really fast, um, which sort of stopped me getting freaked out about it in a way. So it was. Um, just one of the, you know, working on a film score, there's many different jobs and there's, you know, you're, you're trying to find this piece of source music and this piece of folk music and then you're trying to do an arrangement of that and uh, you're trying to write all these different pieces of score and um, uh, and work on them with the director until everybody's happy. And so writing this song was just one of those jobs. You know, it's mm. just what what could they all sing at the end? And I came up, I had, I had been working on the gospel song for a long time that I... I couldn't really finish. It was just a kind of a a song about a song. You know how gospels the the interface between gospel and secular music is is a really cool place. You know where where Al, where Al Green left left the church and started to only talk about sex. Um, and there's you know there's a there's fantastic songs around that moment. Yeah. Uh, there's a there's a great one that um, my old friend Frank Stark played me once called called Bell by Al Green. If you've ever right. heard that, no, um, I don't have. It's basically it's basically a, a gospel song, but it's taking out the taking out the word Jesus and replacing it by the name of a, a woman, okay. and it's all about temptation and all about longing. And but but also that song, essentially, um, the singer says, "It's you, I, it's you I want, but it's him I need." So it's like. The, the singer's going, I, I, I really love to leave the church and run away with you, but I can't. So it's, a, it's about being torn apart. And I've always loved that sort of stuff. Um, uh, and I could see there might be a, there might be a space for a song where um, the, the, what you were singing to and what you, what you were talking about was a sense of, um, diving into the river of humanity, um, mm. um, uh, be, being part of the world, not being an observer, and that that um, and leaving your sense of fear behind. Uh, and I thought, if you could do that, and you could, if you could put that that message across with the kind of sense of devotion that the great gospel music has. Yeah. then wouldn't that be a thing wouldn't that be great so um that was what kind of that was what kind of kicked me into gear i already had that kind of framework and it had been sitting around for a few years and tor um just telling me to write this this song quickly <laughs> get on with it maybe get on with it that intersection then, makes me think of uh there's a stevie wonder song about heaven is 10 zillion miles away and i feel right. like that's the kind of song that's also at that intersection it's not a gospel song 
but it's 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 kind of using gospel themes and, and even phraseology i guess if you think about the word like heaven and where it is and stuff and it's just yeah, yeah i think that there's something about gospel music about sort of a spiritual slash religious music music that there's a there's a feeling to it that you don't always get in i don't know what you call it mainstream pop music whatever it is but if you can yeah. get that tr- tr- crossover where you kind of have the feel of that gospel music and the and the style or the even let's be honest production values yeah. of the mainstream music there's some um, there's some um, it's an amazing transition point yeah 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 i mean we, we, when you when you're trying to write a song you are you're you're trying to you're trying to pull people out of their normal lives and and you know create the possibility of um people losing themselves you know people People losing themselves in something bigger, um, and when and when the you know a good song can do that, um, uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't claim that any of mine have done that. But if you listen to, you know, if you listen to um, Waterloo Sunset, that's uh, that's that sense of uh, of hope, a kind of bruised hope hopefulness. You know that the singer the singer looks at all these bright lights around Waterloo Station and and sort of goes well. I'm probably too shy to hang out there, but but these people, Terry and Julie, that I'm singing the song about, mm-hmm. they go out into the night, right? Uh, and and isn't that a beautiful thing? I mean, it's a um, that's the most subtle and gorgeous song, and he, and the, and he's not trying hard, but but I get I get shivers when I listen to that, you know, and and it's a I I think I'm in the presence of something something bigger than just humans. How does it feel being the sort of producer of the song, the writer of the song, the composer of the song, to then watch someone else sing it? Like you're writing it like Holly Smith, right? How do you feel personally when you have your music being done by other people? And I don't mean covers of your music. I mean your music being done by other people. So writing for other people versus uh-huh. when you're performing. Is there, a, is there a, Does it feel different to you? Are you? Do you like doing one more than the other or does it really depend on the project? Oh, it depends on the project. I, I, um, I always knew that that someone else was going to sing, "Bathe in the River." Um, uh, Bella Kololo did the did the original version for the film when we when we first put that song together, and then mm-hmm. much much later in the piece, um, Tor had heard Holly singing somewhere and said said, um, "I know, I know, we've already nailed it. Sounds great, but can we try? Can we just?" Try Holly, see what it sounds like. Um, so, um, and I was blown away by what she, by what she did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's great to sort of give it away and and uh, to know that to know that the song's not um, not going to be bound by my uh, any of my. Um, uh, Restrictions, or you know, there's 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 particular characters that I can sort of inhabit, um, and uh, I've I've inhabited quite a few characters in my own so in my own records, um, <clears throat> but there's a limited a limited range. So mm-hmm. if, uh, by writing a song that you know someone else is going to sing, it's um, it's really exciting. Um, uh, for this kids TV series that Harry Sinclair and I are working on. Uh, Harry had this idea of uh, of um, a microscopic little band of insects who are living in the fur of of one of the main characters. The the character that's played by Jermaine Clement is a sort of purple purple elephant type thing, and um, 
and so these these microscopic greeblies uh, sing this song uh, about about you know what it's like to be almost like a like a band of brigands, right. like a, <laughs> living 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 on their wits in the in the fur of this um, of this creature. And we got Paul Kelly to sing it, and uh, he had a blast. You know, he he he's sort of channels this um, some kind of strange cowboy vibe um and uh and when you when you see it on screen it's it's very very funny so um I, i've had a, a real ball doing that and i've written songs for tammy nielsen to sing also to mm -hmm. do also in uh, in kitty and lou um uh and the sort of um big uh big sh uh, show-stopping type power that she's got which um um, I could never get in a million million years. So it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's fantastic to uh, to be able to put your own um, put your own limitations aside and write for a range of different people. And uh, um, I'm lucky that I've had those opportunities in the last few years. Um, I was doing some maths in my head, and it doesn't make sense to me. So I'm going to do it out loud now. From scratch was in the seventies officially. Eh? end of the seventies. Um, in the end of seventy, so I was about eighteen when I joined. Um, uh, I was born in fifty nine, so yeah, around around seventy seven, seventy eight. So, so this is the math that don't. This is the math that don't work. Seventies, eighties, nineties, noughties, teens, twenties. Yep. That means you have been a performer in the last six decades. Now, for someone who's like sixty three, that doesn't yep. make sense, but I'm right, eh? 70s, because well, 70s is a decade. 80s, so you've performed. You've been You've got to remember that we haven't got very far into this decade. That we're I know, in and it's the end so. of the 70s. So I guess that's how yeah. it works, but it means you yeah. have performed in the last six uh, in the last six decades. And I thought it would be fantastic to get some of your insights as to someone who's kind of started off when uh, the music industry was a certain way, you know, and has done all these different things from, you know, from working in theatre to, you know, being a pop star, to uh, working with other people, to doing soundtracks, to coming back to being a solo artist, being parts of bands. What, I, I don't know how you can answer this question, actually. I realise it's ridiculous in my head, but what have you seen? I mean, the industry over that time period, I mean, what have you seen? It Like, I'm even wondering, are there things that were better back then that aren't as good now? Is this the age of music? We, those of us who aren't involved, hear all these stories about how it's harder for artists these days to, for example, get paid, but it's easier to put product out. You know, what have you seen? What have you learned? What are the big takeaways from this massive girth of career you've got? Um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm not the best one to ask about how conditions are for everybody because um, one of the things you have to do to keep uh, – keep alive in, in New Zealand as a musician is keep your head down and just, and do the, do your work. And I'm, I'm no uh, exception to that. So, um, um, but I can say that, that um, there weren't many bands when I started off, there weren't many opportunities to play. Uh, then, you know, there, if you read Nick Bollinger's really, he's got a cool book called Gonville, which talks about, um, starting off in bands when when the, the the breweries put together bands and sent them around the country um, and you you know if you're lucky maybe you'd get in one of those you, you'd get a contract to go around the go around the pubs and there was a sort of monopoly you couldn't play unless you were um, 
in one of those situations. And then, of course, punk happened and it blew everything apart and sort of more bands were playing in more rooms. Um, uh, and and at the same time, uh, that sort of sense that that there weren't many bands being, being listened to and getting a platform, that was kind of uh, expanded suddenly uh, and you had really strong schools of thought growing in different parts of the country. So you had, you, had, you know, what was happening in Dunedin, uh, what was happening in Auckland, and then in other, other, other cities too, you know, sort of Hamilton had various scenes, Wellington had various scenes, um, uh, and everywhere people were discovering, uh, discovering, the um you know what everybody has to discover when they when they decide to enter this business is is that on the one hand there's the there's the the ladder that you climb up of of uh notoriety and popularity mm-hmm. and uh, and sales and and um uh fix, figure sales figures and then there's trying to trying to do stuff that makes you happy and makes your and and impresses you and impresses the people that you care about, whose opinion you care about, um, which is generally the people around you, your friends. Um, and um, so everybody's got to, everybody's got to look at those two different yardsticks and work out how to live with them and how to live with themselves. You know, when you, you know, if you, if you completely, if you completely go, well, I'm going to try and be popular, uh, then, um, then obviously you've thrown away the other yardstick of, how to how to make stuff that is really true to you and uh, and um, describes your world um, and uh, makes you feel more human, more alive, more um, bigger, I suppose. Um, yeah. And um, so, uh, and I think that I think that struggle um, is it takes place everywhere in the world. You know, every, everywhere the world that people are picking up guitars. You know, they've. Um, uh, and around that time, around that time in the 80s in, in New Zealand, there was a sort of incredible sense of ferment or uh, fermentation or foment. Foment's a good word. Um, um, <laughs> you, get, yeah, you, you drink fermented liquors and then you foment. Um, uh, and, they, um, and, uh, and there were orthodoxies and... Um, uh, Sort of strong sets of opinions, uh, um, in crowds and out crowds, um, um, uh, but it, gave, it just gave rise to this sense of a place that could sort of stand up and make its own music, and and you know, when people sat down to write, they weren't just pretending or imitating somebody in America or somebody in England, mm. they, they were, they were imitating or at least being shored up by and surrounded by, um, people from here. Uh, and I think, I think that's a big change. That's a really big change. Um, and mm. that happened in the eighties and, and in the nineties and, and, um, a lot of great stuff got written. Um, uh, and now, for for various reasons, you've got more of a sense that um, uh, uh, people are 
kind of comfortable finding a voice, finding their own voice, um, and picking and choosing from all of the uh, uh, all of the um, other artists that have sort of come before them in this place, um, and um, also comfortable supporting each other, more comfortable. Mm. I think when I when I started off, you know, punk was quite divisive, and also um, you know, making music in sort of New Zealand was quite divisive too, the sort of regional splits that we had. Um, and there were times when um, I was in bands where band members wouldn't would cross the road rather than be seen chatting to, you know, people in, a, in another band that they didn't think was quite wow. as cool, cool as them. <laughs> and I don't think you don't know that you get that anymore. I think we're, there's a sort of sense, sort of grown up sense that we're in, we're, we're you know, whatever you think of somebody's music, they're trying to do the same thing with their lives as you're doing. For sure. And, and that's something to be applauded and, uh, uh, and supported. Um, and that's, that's really a good thing. Um, I see that all the time because I know through the pandemic, it was really hard to put a lineup together, put a band together. So there were, there were times when everybody was jumping from band to band and people were learning charts off different bands for different bands and um, jumping from tour to tour. And that, would have been kind of unthinkable when I was starting in music, partly because there weren't enough good players. But right. now there's a lot of really good players and um, a lot of people that have are really have got good chops, but they're also aesthetically really good. They, they've, you know, they you can you can trust them to sort of understand understand the, the what you're getting at with a with a, a kind of a, a feel in a song. Um, but then the other stuff you you go on to mention about um, it it being hard to survive uh, with uh, the bottom drop, dropping out of, of uh, physical sales of, of music um, and streaming not stepping up and replacing that. That's that's really, really tough. And I I don't know what that means for the long-term, for a long-term future of people who do what I do. I, I, um, I'm lucky that I've kept, kept doing this, uh, um, you know, writing songs and putting out records is sort of central to who I am and what I do, and I've managed to sort of f finance that par partially by doing things like film scores and and working work for TV and theatre and stuff. Um, so my sort of extra job has always been music. Right. So my main job is music, and the extra job, my side hustle has always been music as well. <laughs> um, so I'm really lucky in that regard, and, and I know a lot of New Zealanders don't do that. Um, you know, there's people that um, do all kinds of things, and there's a lot of um, really understanding employers who uh, who believe in New Zealand music. So they they let their bass player get away for a month long tour and then come back yep. to their job or something like that. So, um, um, but I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen from now on. Um, I I want I want people to get back into being able to uh, being able to sell their music in a, in a meaningful way so that you can put out a record and it pays for itself. Well, I mean, that's a perfect transition into your latest album, I guess. And the first thing I was thinking as you were talking about, you know, um, jumping around other artists helping out, and I'm looking at the the lineup for your latest album, and I see Dimmer, Straight Jacket Fix, SJD, Phoenix Foundation, uh, Holly Smith, Emily Fairlight. It is exactly sort of what you're describing and more. But the thing that fascinated me most of all 
with that massive back catalog, which I've you know, sh showed a couple of times. Actually, haven't even showed it because there's all the um, there's all the um, the soundtracks as well. Is this one is an independent release, and I'm assuming that just means no label. It's you, yeah. And this is your first number one album, yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder how that works. Is that based on downloads? Is that based on sales? I know I knew how it worked when I was a teenager. It was the amount of albums or singles sold, physical hard copies. This is you as an independent, and this is your first number one album, which blows my brain that it's the first number one album. But explain that to us. Unpack that to us and tell us a bit about the album. Uh, well, I I don't know much about the how they um, uh, how they award uh, how you, how you do chart placings um, in the current climate. My understanding, of what I'm what I'm told, is that they uh, is is they've got some some sort of formula. They have physical sales. And then mm -hmm. they have they have um, downloads, and then they have streaming. So right. they look at they look at all those things, and they do some sort of calculation and work out um, work out what's um, uh, you know work out what's the what's you know the most the highest selling uh, record in in the country in any in any given week. Um, I think we were helped in this one by. Uh, the fact that the whole thing was postponed, and so a lot of um, a lot of my audience was sort of uh, champing at the bit uh, mm. to to buy it. So that that meant uh, a lot of those sales came in the first week, um, which pushed it into number one. But um, having said that, it's um, it's a great thing, and it's um, it's uh, it's vindicating, and it it, it unfortunately um, makes it a bit hard for me to. To um, continue to hold on to my my cherished outsider status, <laughs> so, uh, so, so I, I like I've always liked you know people I've always liked feeling um, you know somewhat overlooked because it's like it's better to be uh, it's better to be um, uh, unfairly overlooked than it is to be unfairly popular. If you know what I mean. Um, so I it, also, thought, it also could be seen as a bit scarier because now, now you can't kind of claim, oh, you know, I'm just a, you know, I'm not, I'm not one of the big boys, although you are. But but now that you've got a number one album, it's like you were talking before. You didn't use this phrase, but when you were talking about the collaboration in the '80s and people who came before, I was thinking that idea about standing on the shoulders of giants, you know, and how people are informed their music is informed on some level by the giants that have come before them and you know it's all official now you're a giant you've had a number one album <laughs> i mean I, I think that was already the case don but but it's official now because you've got a number one album you can't really get away from it unfortunately <laughs> well i mean um it's more i mean it's more from my perspective is it's more comfortable it's always been more comfortable to be sort of um to be uh, a niche interest you know, for 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 people, you know that that, uh, and um, it's that it's that Groucho Marx thing that that um, you know he ne he never wanted to be a member of a member of a club that would accept him as a member, yeah, 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 and yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, I think there's a little bit of that a little bit of that for me. I mean, um, it's not going to change anything because I I I am still driven by the same things. I still want to put my work out. I still I still have a deep mistrust of the. Um, the way the industry works, um, I don't really feel a part of it. Um, uh, I'm I, I'm happy to um, I'm happy to stand up and be 
uh, be a part of all the other people that are trying to make work, other other people that are trying to put out songs. I think I think um, I'm very glad to 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 be a card carrying member of that club. But um, uh, there are a lot of things about the industry. You know, it's it's fasc- fascination with novelty. Um, um, it's uh, yeah, it's sort of. Um, it sounds it, like it sounds to me. It sounds to me, Don. It sounds to me, Don. That I don't know if you would put it this way, but what I hear you describing is someone who's got success as a byproduct rather than a focus, because you don't seem that comfortable with the words that I'm throwing at you. But your your body of work and your experience warrants those kinds of words. So it seems to me that you're the kind of person who has got success or whichever words is correct to use there. You know, uh, you know. I think you've got five songs in the top 100 of New Zealand. I think that's the correct answer. Um, and and I always think that when when making art, whatever it is, or when making content, if if the byproduct is success, not the focus, that's always the best kind of art because you're doing it for the reason of doing it as opposed to for the reason of getting eyes or ears on it. Yeah, yeah, and you're trying to, uh, I mean, you're trying to um, get better at doing it too. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I'm never happier than when uh, I've started a song and I can kind of see it up, up in the distance. Yeah. You know, it's, I can make, just dimly make it out. I know, mm-hmm. I feel that it could be good. Uh, and uh, I'm just the best, easiest person to live with during that period. <laughs> and those those periods are not very long because I can. Yeah. You know, it'll take me. Um, I might start a. Oh, I might start a song and be working on it for a month. But but that month will necessarily include a lot of times when I've I've given up or I don't think it's going to be any good or I've I've completely forgotten it and I'm busy doing something else. But um, during that during those times, uh, that's and it's that feeling. It's that buzz. That is the that's the addictive part. The the uh, you know sure when you sure when you play play something to an audience and you see you see a spark of recognition in, in somebody's eyes, you sing you sing a line or um, or put an image out there, and you can see somebody going, oh wow, I've I've seen that. I mean that's yeah. that is the most <laughs> that's a wonderful feeling too, and it's also of course it's wonderful when when people come and say um, uh, your your songs have kind of, kind of spanned, spanned a, a period for me. They've, 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 they helped me when I was this old, and then they, they came with me when I went overseas, and then I, you know, uh, you had one of them playing at my wedding or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's super cool because you you then you can sense that um, those those songs have have been useful useful to people. Um, but all of that, if all of that evaporated. I would still keep writing if I didn't have yeah. any of that. If I never played live, I would still have that that exciting feeling that I get when there's when I've just started a song and I and I can see my way through to finishing it. Cool. Hey, I want to tell people about your tour. I mean, it's the reason you're really here. <laughs> Let's be honest. Big long advert for you. Um, but before that, just one last question. Uh, you're in Vancouver now. Is yep. Vancouver home? Is New Zealand still home? Is there a, a, a movement in between? New Zealand's still home. I'm here yeah. here in Vancouver um, about half the time. Uh, my wife lives here, um, and uh, I come back. I come back regular, regularly to New Zealand to to tour, to work, to record, to see my kids, to see my friends, to see my family. Um, and um, when when there isn't a pandemic, I'm sort of back every few months. Right. 
Uh, but these last couple of years, it's been longer blocks because it's been harder for harder to travel around. So this 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 time has been I've been away for away from New Zealand for seven months, which is quite a long time. Um, let's tell people about what's coming up. Very exciting when you head back to New Zealand. You said in about three weeks' time, Don McGlashan and the others: James Duncan, Chris O'Connor, Shane P. Carter, Anita Clark. Uh, Queenstown, Dunedin, Christchurch, Akaroa, uh, Hastings, Wellington, Paikokariki, Nelson, Lee, Auckland, uh, all starting October 20th and going through to November 5th. And then if any of our Australian friends happen to be watching, uh, Sydney, Canberra, Melbourne as well, getting off over there. And if people want to find out more about that, uh, easiest thing to do is to head to donmcglashan.com, uh, get all the tickets there and... Um, yeah, what's the one? Uh, what's the one song that people yell at you most of all? Is it is it Dominion Road? Is it Anchor Me? What is the one that if you if you haven't played mm. it, what's the encore that they yell at you most of all? Well, people quite a lot of people will, will call out for strange dark ones like um, like uh, White Valiant or A Thing Well Made if we haven't played it. Um, uh, but certainly Anchor Me, people will yell out for that. It has been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, Don. Thank you so much for giving us some time. I really appreciate it. And, um, yeah, all the best with the uh, with the tour. Um, when are you in Dunedin? October 21st. Oh, part of the Arts Festival. All right. Yep. yep, um, I'll, yep. I'm, we'll, we'll be there. And it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks for giving us some time. And uh, uh, good luck on your travels, and we'll see you back in New Zealand. Thanks for having me.